Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 31. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Hearman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travishearman.com slash rogues. Chapter 52 There's nothing nastier than a fucking knife fight, Russ growled as he stood knee-deep in carnage, his chest heaving. He was a horrific figure, covered in blood and sweat, a multitude of small gashes seeping blood through his sliced clothing. I'm getting too old for this. Carl snorted with laughter. Aye, that'll be the day. He stood above Rusk in the tower stairwell, also knee-deep in dead Ibsothans. Their surprise rear attack had worked perfectly, coupled with the tower's spiral stairs that gave the advantage to the man above of fighting more effectively with his right hand, and Carl had delivered the final blow to the Absothans in the stairway. He could not count the bodies, because Rusk and his team had left a trail of them clogging the stairs on their way up. A cry of pain echoed behind them. Severin's voice rose from behind Carl. Bastards! A door slammed. Carl charged back up the stairs. Brick had been serving as rear guard, and now he lay against the wall, legs sprawling out, a wet stain spreading across his chest. Blood bubbled from his lips as he gasped for breath. Brick pointed weakly at the door a few feet away. Severin threw his shoulder vainly against the stout wood, cursing. "'How many?' Carl asked. Severin snarled. "'I saw only the one. Came out of there like a fucking viper.' Rusk stormed up the stairs and took one look at Brick. Fresh anger rushed into his eyes. He knelt and opened Brick's blood-soaked tunic, exposing the man's broad, hairy chest. Carl stood back to look at the wound. It was no good. The blow had been a perfect thrust between the ribs and through the heart. Brick's head lolled to the side, his eyes glazing. The mop didn't detail the small rooms, Rusk murmured as he closed Brick's eyes. But there must be another way in there. A door in the main structure, perhaps. Severn made way as Rusk stepped up to the door. He threw his powerful bulk against it, but it did not budge. No chance without a bothering ram. We'll have to find another way. He called back down the stairs. Careful, lads. There are still serpents in this den. Another beleaguered voice came from above. Do you need some help, boss? Carl turned and looked up at Sasha. Damn it, Sasha, what are you doing on your feet? She was a specter of agony, naked except for Javin's wet goffrini shirt, shivering, limping against the stone wall, her face an incomprehensible mass of blood and swollen bruises. Welts and bruises covered her long legs. She held her right arm close to her chest with Javin's pistol dangling from the other. Enonance tits, Rusk breathed. Not any kind of help you can give, girl. 
Where's Javin? Carl said. He went looking for Bella. Russ growled. That young fool better not get himself killed because I'm going to kick his arse for leaving you alone. Severn, see to her wounds. Find some blankets if you can. The rest of us have a few more serpents to kill. I like snakes, Snake Eye said. Aye, for breakfast and supper, Rusk said. Snake Eye grinned. Severn said, I think Javin saw something outside. Carl glanced through the arrow slit above Brick's body. But this view was only a corner of the courtyard. He could see nothing. Javin was a fool to go off alone in this seething den of lethal vipers. Carl's mind flashed through what he had seen of the tower's interior, the arrangement of the doors and entrances. There are holding cells on the levels above. Bella could be in one of them. He led the way back up the steps. With each step he took stock of what he had. His only sure weapon was his well-worn Macklin saber. The rain had likely fouled his pistol. He did not dare trust his life with it. When he reached the next landing, he threw open the door. Inside was a thirty-foot-long hallway with holding cells on either side. In the middle of the hallway stood three shadowed figures in a pool of yellow lamplight. Two of them stood with one of the cell doors open, with the muzzle of an arquebus trained inside the cell. The third knelt facing Carl, and all Carl saw was two fierce dark eyes and the cavernous muzzle of another arquebus before an explosion of smoke and orange fire filled his vision. An unseen hammer slammed into him and drove his body up against the wall, driving his breath from him. The strength left his legs and he slid to the floor. Pain roared through his upper chest and shoulder. He could not take a breath. The cloud of smoke rose toward the ceiling, and under it, Carl could see the three Ibsothans. Rusk stormed through the door and charged. The other arquebus swiveled toward him and roared. A leaden ball smacked against the wall above Carl. Powdered stone dusted his head. The tall, thin Ibsothan hissed an order, and they all dashed toward the door at the far end of the hallway. One of them pulled out what looked like a smooth white chicken egg and flung it at Rusk. The egg struck him squarely in the chest and burst with a showering puff of white dust. He skidded to a halt, covering his eyes and coughing violently. He staggered back out of the cloud of dust, and the far door slammed shut behind the three Absothans. Tears streamed from his eyes, making streaks in the white dust on his face, and snot poured out of his nose. "'After them, lads!' he roared. The rest of the Furies, all seven of them, poured through the door and rushed down the hallway. Rusk wiped his eyes and nose and spat onto the floor again and again. "'Helion's balls! I hate it when someone uses my own kind of tricks against me! This stuff fucking burns!' He turned to look at Carl, blinking through a barrage of tears. "'How bad!' "'Hard to say, boss,' Carl said. "'Hurts like hell. Can't move my arm.' "'Severn!' Moments later, Severn was at Carl's side, pulling aside his shirt to examine the wound. Severn said, "'You lads should stop getting shot.' As Severn wiped the blood away and reached into his small pack, Rusk walked toward the cell door that hung ajar. Carl said, "'Brilliant strategy, Severn. How bad?' "'Hard to say. Perhaps a broken bone or two. The bullet passed through. He stuffed a numb leaf into Carl's mouth and another leaf into each hole in Carl's shoulder. Then he took out some bandages and pressed them against the front and back. Carl chewed the tough, bitter-tasting leaf, and his tongue became nothing more than a slimy flap of insensate meat. From down the hallway, Rusk said, "'I'll be damned!' He held open the cell door and sheathed his blade. He wiped the snot and tears and blood from his calloused hand and offered it. Zamisham Fathad the Twelfth, I presume? 
he said in Farthy, I offer you water in the sunlight and bread in the moonlight. It was the common expression of Farthy friendship and hospitality. Rusk had listened well to Tonin's lessons. His accent was excellent. A tall, farthy man stepped tentatively out of the cell. He stood naked to the waist and a bit disheveled, but he still moved with a natural regal air and nobility. His sharp eyes studied the apparition of incarnate violence standing before him. The man answered slowly and farthy, I accept your water in the sunlight and your bread in the moonlight. He offered his hand to Rusk, and they clasped hands. He said in Cuskish, You speak farthy. And you speak Kuskish. It is wise to study the ways of one's adversary. Indeed, Rusk said. But we are not here as your adversary today. You are the victim of a dangerous plot. A plot that involves both our countries, one meant to send us back into war. We are here to stop it. Zamish's face remained utterly impassive as he listened. You are here to kill High Priest Hassad and recapture your women. That is our mission. Who are they, the women? The woman belongs to me. The young girl is Bella Wollstone, daughter of Grand General Janus Wollstone. Bella was taken captive to provoke the Grand General back to war. Zamish nodded slowly. And who are you? I am called Rusk. Zamish's eyes fixed on Rusk for several long heartbeats. His voice was carefully neutral when he spoke. There is a price on your head. Five thousand zo. Rusk grinned. Five thousand? Now that's more like it. He cleared his throat and his face grew serious again. A hefty sum, your highness. I'll not say that your people don't have reason to hate me, nor will I apologize. War is war, but the war is over. Is it? Zamish's gaze flashed with a challenge. Rusk did not flinch. That is a question for priest-kings and grand-generals, not for the likes of me. But I came here to avert a new one, so perhaps it should be. I mean to see you safely back to Alcott. And in exchange? The far door opened again, and Mackett came running through it. Boss! Rusk turned. Are they dead? Mackett slid to a halt and glanced back and forth between Rusk and Zamish. No, they've holed up in some hall and barred the doors. One of them is asking for you. He wants a parley. Rusk put his hands on his hips. Does he now? He turned to Zamish again. Your Highness, I expect that he's going to try to convince me to kill you and strike some sort of deal. After all, my men and I have all but defeated him already. He cannot let loose the knowledge to your priest-kings or your people that you were in fact taken captive by these Ibsothans and not by my people, as he would have everyone believe. Kuska had nothing to do with any of this. My men will protect you. Would you care to accompany me and see if this is the case? Zamish nodded slowly, thoughtfully. I would. They all followed Mackett back down through the fortress corridors and halls until they reached a cavernous vaulted foyer in the largest fortress structure. Thanks to the numbleaf and a moment's rest, Carl was able to gain his feet and walk. Sasha followed along, keeping a respectful distance, in her near-nakedness, from Zamish. 
On one side of the grand foyer was what appeared to be a temple. The tall double doors to the temple and the surrounding stonework were carved with elaborate martial scenes and archaic farthy script. Gold, silver, and polished jewels glinted like multicolored stars in the bas-reliefs. The high vaulted ceiling was painted with ancient images of legend, but was flaking so badly with age that they were all but unrecognizable. But, despite its age, the entire chamber was fastidiously clean. There was not a speck of dust or a cobweb to be seen. Rain pounded against the roof and the walls. Carl leaned against the balustrade of a sweeping staircase leading up to the second floor of a central structure. His body started to shake uncontrollably, and he grew very, very cold. His eyelids sagged with beckoning sleep, but he did not dare. His vision swam. Mackett threw open the tall double doors to the courtyard to admit more of the dawning gray light. Moments later, five figures came running across the courtyard, through the rain, and stopped inside the foyer. The Furies stopped to stare for a moment at the five figures. At the sight of one of them, relief flooded through Carl. "'Lady Wollstone,' Rusk said with gracious warmth, standing straight to face her. "'I'm pleased to see that your brother found you all in one piece.' Commander Rusk, at your service. Bella held Javin's arm as she curtsied with a shy smile. Thank you, Commander Rusk. Carl appraised her for a moment. Had she been worth the lives of so many of his brothers? All this pain and effort? It was difficult to tell at the sight of this gangly, beaten, bedraggled girl. Nevertheless, she carried herself with a natural grace such as he had seldom seen. Indeed, born as he was among the nobility, he recognized a similar mien. Perhaps now she could grow up to be a fine noble lady and become a credit to her great house and a fine upstanding member of her family. She was born to be a noble woman, far more so than Carl had been born to be a noble man. He belonged more among the Black Furies than in any noble house. Lord Codsucker Wollstone, Russ continued, I am pleased to see that you are still in one piece as well. And after we deal with this final bit of business, I intend to put my boot up your arse for leaving a wounded fury behind without orders. Sasha has asked me to kill you. Javin stood at attention. As you please, sir. Severn, patch up his head. I don't want it to bleed to death before I kill him. Severn stepped forward and looked at the nasty gash across Javin's pate. His hair was a wet mat of coagulating blood. Codsucker Tonin, Rusk said. "'Can you read the writing around the doors?' Tonin stepped forward, cradling his wounded hand. He took up an oil lamp and approached the beautiful scrolling script engraved in the stone. "'I can't, boss. It's too archaic.' Another deep voice said, "'I can.' Zamish stepped forward. It says, "'Enter ye the chapel of skulls, if your faith is pure. Shrine to the majesty and power of Sadith.' most holy servant of the great prophet. The two farthy women looked at Zamish Amphathad Twelfth with fresh recognition and began to quake. He fixed them with an imperious glare, and they prostrated themselves before him. He did not deign to waste his breath speaking to them. Carl looked around the cavernous foyer. Before him lay the double doors beyond which the leader of the Absathans was said to be hiding. To his right lay the open front door of the courtyard. To his left was a dark, low-ceilinged corridor behind a row of pillars, between the chapel wall and the thick outer wall of the fortress. Something pricked his curiosity. Rusk stepped up to the door. 
Hello inside. You wanted to parlay with me. After a pause, a deep resonant voice sounded from beyond the door. You may come inside. I want us to speak face to face. I want us both to see the kind of men we truly are. You have my word that my men will not harm you while we speak. Mighty gracious of you, Rusk said wryly. Why should I agree? I believe you are a pragmatic man. You and your men, and your women, are far from home. I can see you home safely and fill your coffers with more treasure than you can carry. Let us speak about how we can both benefit most from our situation. Very well, Russ called. Open the door. A grinding noise inside the door bespoke a bar being drawn back. The door opened a crack. Be careful, boss, mumbled Mackett. Carl walked toward the dark corridor behind the pillars. The corridor appeared to lead around the perimeter of the chapel chamber. He snapped his fingers to snare Fishbreath's attention and gestured for him to follow. Carl started down the corridor with Fishbreath close behind him. The only light was the dim gray coming from the foyer behind him. They cast long, diffuse shadows down the stone corridor wall, across several narrow doors that looked like storage rooms with heavy locks. Fishbreath snatched Carl's arm and pointed. Look! he hissed. Had a dark figure just flitted across the end of the corridor through the last door? Carl drew his saber, and Fishbreath ran ahead. Carl trotted as fast as his weariness and pain would allow. Fishbreath stood at the edge of the doorway, peering around into the darkness of the room. He lunged inside. A thunderous orange flash and a puff of smoke erupted out of the blackness. Fishbreath flew backward, sprawling into the hallway. Carl cursed silently and slid up along the wall beside the open door. Fishbreath lay motionless across from him, a bullet hole through the center of his face. Something hard thumped against wood, a small splintering, then another flash of sparks. He peeked around the corner. An oil-soaked rag in an ibsothen hand flared into blue-orange flame. The man stuffed the rag into the open bung of a large wooden barrel, one among many. Rags and racks of hand weapons and firearms lined the walls of the room. Only one thing could fill those barrels. Cries of alarm echoed down the corridor from the foyer from the sound of the gunshot. The man turned and faced the door, spotted Carl, and his face became a mask of beatific satisfaction. Carl spun, and with a rush of fresh vitality surging through his body, he pummeled down the corridor. Every step was a burst of agony in his wounded shoulder. He shouted at the top of his lungs, Run! Everyone outside! Run! Outside! Run! 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 He rounded the corner into the foyer, watching their backs flying out into the rain. The shock of the first explosion hit him between the shoulder blades like a sledgehammer of fresh pain. He sprawled onto his face, leaving a streak of blood from his chin across the stone floor. His teeth crashed together. His ears rang like temple bells, drowning out all other sound. And then, nothing more. Chapter 53 Javin hauled Bella under the protective roof of the sacred well as the first explosion blew the other roof into the sky and a huge crown of black smoke and orange fireball. Severn ran with Sasha thrown over his shoulder, 
A heartbeat later, four more explosions ripped through the structure, sending tones of stonework and roof tiles spinning into the downpour. Rocks began to rain from the sky like a storm of lethal missiles, splashing and crashing around them, clanging and smashing on the sturdy stone roof above their heads. A column of smoke and gray dust roiled out of the wreckage. Gutted stone walls tumbled down, slowly, as if too weary now to remain standing. Bella's hand was clamped tight around Javin's wrist. He had chopped away the silver chain that bound her wrist, but the leather bracelets were still fastened around them. He gently removed her hand. Tonin, stay here and watch them. Javin, no! Bella cried. Stay here, sister. Mackett snarled. Come on, lads, we have to get them out of there. Snake Eye glanced at Maggot and Tonin, then at the farthy women. His voice was low and deadly. We'll stay here with our guests. The rest of them charged into the smoke and wreckage. Fires licked up from the rear of the building, but the rain was already dousing the flames. Only half of the front wall of the foyer still stood. The roof of the foyer was gone, as was much of the roof of the Chapel of Skulls. The wall of the chapel nearest the explosions lay flattened and scattered across the floor of what had been the foyer, but the opposite half of the chapel remained mostly intact. A dark-clad figure lay motionless under one of the chapel's ancient doors. Carl! Eden and Marden shouted and ran toward him. The chapel door had landed against the stone balustrade of the steps, sheltering Carl from the rain of stones that now lay atop the cracked and splintered door. He lay covered with a film of gray stone dust mixed with rain. Mackett skidded up beside him. Is he alive? I don't know, Eden and Marden said. A roar of rage thundered from within what remained of the Chapel of Skulls. Stones clattered and rattled. The boss, Mackett cried. Javin ran toward the opening where the chapel doors had once hung. The floor inside was awash in gray water, gushing among piles of fallen stones and mounds of human bones and skulls. Thousands upon thousands of bleached skulls adorned the remaining walls, reaching to the revolted ceiling, thousands of empty black eye sockets gazing silently down. Bones of other kinds, ribs and fingers and leg bones, formed elaborate, grotesquely beautiful mosaics on the walls. At the far end of the hall, a statue of a man had snapped off at the ankles and shattered against the floor. Aside from the grisly decor, the chapel bore all the traditional facets of a farthy temple, an altar, a pulpit, prayer mats, and an atmosphere of ancient, abiding reverence. But even Javin, with his limited knowledge of farthy religion, could sense that this chamber was a grotesque perversion. Standing in the middle of the shattered hall stood Rusk, covered in blood and gray mud, his eyes blazing and his body quivering with rage. His clenched teeth gleamed in the lightning flashes. On trembling legs, he staggered around. Where is he? The Black Furies encircled him. Where is he? Rusk roared again. Find him! Javin and the rest of them swirled among the piles of fallen stones, looking for the Absothan leader. Rusk pointed and pressed his other hand against his ear. His voice was loud. He was standing there by the altar when the shot rang out. Distracted me. Then I looked back and he was gone. Buck called from the front of the chapel. Here's a body. There they found an Ibsothan body, all but pulped beyond recognition. The head was a smudge of blood and brains, teeth and hair. That's not him, Rusk said. How do you know? Buck said. Rusk kicked the remains of a splintered arquebus lying under a heavy stone. This was the underling, one of them who shot Carl, 
Here's his gun. This man had no jewels in his beard. He picked his way over and around the debris until he reached the area near the remains of the stone altar, stumbling slightly. Javin spotted a dark depression in the floor behind the altar. A sinking feeling began to form in his belly. He rushed toward the hole. The depression became a narrow stairwell leading into blackness. He jumped down into the opening and saw that tons of rubble filled the passageway about twenty feet below. The bottom steps were rapidly collecting a pool of rainwater. He shook his head and climbed back up the steps. It's collapsed, he said. Either by the explosion or the enemy, I cannot say which. It will take hours and tools to dig through here. Rusk's lips erupted in a stream of blooming vulgarities the likes of which Javin never could have imagined being dreamt up by the mind of a man, involving all manner of gods, animals, orifices, and lewd predilections. Back in the foyer, they found Mackett, Eden, and Marden, heaving the chapel door off Carl's inert shape. "'He's alive, boss!' Mackett cried. Rusk rushed forward and helped them throw off the massive chapel door and clear away the rocks. They soon had Carl free, and they carried him to the stable, laying him on a bed of old straw. The unseen dawn had arrived, and rain continued to pelt down out of a cold gray sky. As Severin saw to Carl's condition, Zamish approached Rusk and drew him aside. Javin was careful to place himself within eavesdropping distance. Zamish said, Commander Rusk, what of Hassad? Your Highness, the pus-sucking horse unescaped, I'm sorry to say, Rusk replied, spitting with frustration and contempt. Do you intend to go after him? Not now. He could be anywhere by now. We've left a few of his lackeys trapped outside the fortress. We don't know how many. I suspect all of them have since disappeared like their master. I have lost enough men today. We have what we came for. What is your next move, then, Commander Rusk? Rusk squared his jaw. We will see to my men and women, and we will escort you back home. Escort? Aye, we want to make damn certain you arrive home safely. These assassins have already made one attempt on your life. His gaze never left Zamish's finely cut features. Rusk would also be certain that His Holiness Zamath Omphathad Seventeenth knew who rescued his son. Zamish said, I'm not sure my father will allow such a dangerous man as you to leave, Commander Rusk. Someone must account for the disappearance of an entire temple full of priests in the town of Barmia. Were they simply taken by demons and ghosts, or were they slaughtered to conceal what they might have seen? The perpetrators of that crime were these absophons, of course, your highness. We followed their trail to Barmia. They brought Bella with them to Barmia Temple, and they could not well make it known that they had abducted the daughter of the Grand General of Cusca. It might have betrayed their plan. Men with the audacity to attack the son of a priest-king would have little compunction against such an act. Zamish considered this. We came here only to bring this girl home, your highness. We came to avert a war, not to kill helpless priests and acolytes. Prior to your abduction— I dispatched a courier back to Norgard with news of what we had found. My man is cunning and resourceful. Within weeks, the Grand General will be aware of who kidnapped his daughter. He will know that his daughter is alive. He will also be expecting her return. If, by happenstance, none of us returns to Cusca, I expect he will be most distressed. You asked me before what I wanted. 
I want safe passage for me and my men out of Fartha. I left two wounded men in the high temple in Alcott, and I intend to see them brought home as well. The astute politician folded his arms and ran his fingers through his beard. Your request is reasonable. There are a number of slave girls in the high temple as well. I want them freed and placed at my discretion. Zamish hesitated. Surely, your highness, you do not wish to quibble over a few slaves. The immediate fate of both our nations rides on our decisions today. The slave girls were the property of the high temple of Ibsatha. I presume that after these events, the Ibsathans will be declared outlaw. In Alcott, surely. I expect my father will pass this news to the other cities, the other priest-kings, and they will follow suit once they hear of what has happened. I will personally assume control of Halhamut. No Ibsathan will ever use it again for their devilish schemes. Zamish looked outside around this wonder of antiquity and engineering. Javan could see his eyes firing with the anticipation of knowledge and discovery. Rusk said, I can vouch for the fact that the high temple is filled with centuries worth of untold riches. I should also mention there are thousands of ancient documents of their lore and activities, going all the way back to the earliest days of Fartha. I hear that you are somewhat of a scholar of history, your highness. Zamish nodded slowly, his eyes glistening. Then those archives are likely worth more to you than all the gold and silver within those walls. Zamish rubbed his chin, then looked at Rusk again. You are a shrewd man, Commander Rusk. I would not be alive today if that were untrue, your highness. All I want from the high temple is my men and those slaves. We will tend our wounds and rest for one day, perhaps two, quietly, out of the way, until the wounded are well enough to travel, and then we will set off for home, quietly and unnoticed by everyone, including your highness. And I hope we never have to return. Zamish's face resumed its unreadable expression. That would be my hope as well. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Hearman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.